Hey there, Romantics. Part two is about to begin. Last time on this thrilling recording, <laughs> we discussed the Roman holiday portion of Evening Star, roughly the first third and a bit of the book. In this part, we're going to be talking about the New York Minute part of the book, the last half, the fake marriage, the tropes. As a reminder of who our characters are, we have Gianna, the young woman whose mother, Aurora, sent her to Rome in the auspices of her weird uncle, Daniele. And we have Alex Saxton, the tall American, which of course means that he's good looking. Do be on the lookout, we will have discussions of rape and violence, which we also had in the first episode of this two-parter. And with that, a thrilling conclusion. Part two, New York Minute. I want to look at how long we're in Rome in the actual, in, in terms of page count. So London, 1847, chapter eight, which is 151. It's 33% of the book is in Rome. So then chapter eight, she shows back up and she has the breakup with the fortune hunter Randall. And then her mom is like, Gianna, you're changed. Gianna, will you tell me what happened in Rome? And she's like, no. I won't. Don't ask me about it. And that's also this beautiful moment of like young people thinking that they can protect their parents. Yes. Because like she understands that her mother wouldn't have intended this for her. And so then chapter nine opens London 1851 and it doesn't open with Gianna. It opens with Aurora on the street thinking about her daughter and she's thinking about her daughter and all the changes and that she and her daughter are basically business partners and she's almost run over by a carriage and in the carriage is a duke. And that duke. We don't know he's a duke. He's just some guy. He's just some guy yelling at her about like being in the street. And then she's like flustered and Aurora's never flustered. And then this guy is like, oh, man, you got really beautiful eyes. Where are you going? Hello. Hello. Going my way? Yeah. And it's like this insane meet cute. 33% of the I way know. through the novel. Not with either of our main characters. If this book had just ended and it was literally just about Aurora and the Duke, I would have been like satisfied. <laughs> One of my notes was I sighed out loud at the end of chapter nine. Oh, yeah. Also, he's like the perfect Duke because he has this effortless amount of money, but he's just, and he just says that. It's so honest. And she's like, I can't give myself to you because I <laughs> yes. would lose my standing as like an individual person. And he's like, manage my accounts. I'll set it up so that it's a trust for you and you alone. That's like, that's what money does, babe. What do you want? How very beautiful you are. Yeah. You go inside now, my dear, and rest. You are doubtless possessed of an exquisite calm, and I wish you to regain it <laughs> i love that part you are no doubt possessed of an exquisite calm and i can't wait to see it i can't wait to see it i know that you have all this inside of you god what are the other things that he says to her like he's like fucking i don't care about anybody else he proposes marriage to her on their first date he's like we have to go get lunch i'll pick you up at seven in the morning and she's like for lunch and he's like oh yeah my favorite place for lunch is four hours away. And he, they go to a private room and he just holds her hand and tells her how beautiful she is and how at his age he's ready to like, when he when you know, you know. Yeah, this is what I mean about like he's the perfect Duke. Guileless. I was thinking how we could fit the cargo hold of the Orion for passengers to America. Poor brutes, the Irish. What with the famine? They haven't much reason to stay, have they, my love? <laughs> and did you solve the problem, Aurora? She shook her head, incurably honest. Now I fear that I was thinking too much of you. Most appropriate, for you were rarely out of my thoughts last night. You know who I am? Indeed. Do you not think that I would wish to know all about the lady I'm going to marry? Marry? And it is like, <laughs> what are you going to do about the Irish fan? <laughs> noted dupe but that's the thing that i mean about this book of like holding two truths like calling the irish poor brutes is a very specific language around that that's meant to be evocative yes. right Catherine coulter i'm pretty sure she's american yes 
Yeah, I think she might even be Texan. Yeah, Americans are famous for many things. One of them is like our undying sympathy for the Irish above all other peoples, right? And so like you can think of like that's clearly intentional is what I mean to say. Like him describing them as poor brutes, right, is meant to be like he's not perfect. Right. In fact, he has a – his wealth has made him ignorant. Yes. And he has no desire to fix it, which makes it a kind of gross negligence on his part. But look at how good he is in all these other ways. Right, because she says, I own Van Cleve Enterprises, Damien, and I – she took a militant look – control all my businesses myself with my daughter's help. Excellent, my love. I'm a very wealthy woman, Damien. I vowed long ago never to wed again and let a man control my fortune. Whatever do I do with another fortune? If you wish it, I will let you manage mine as well. I really have no head for business matters. A duke does not marry a woman of the merchant class, Damien, even if she is a baronet's daughter. I trust that you do not dislike men after your rotter of a husband. I am an excellent lover, so I have been told. That is plain speaking indeed. You are a woman of sense, my love. Why should I not speak plainly? My first wife, now happily in the hereafter, was a silly woman, vain and demanding, and an earl's daughter. I abided her because she did, albeit begrudgingly give me children. I vowed that my second wife, if I ever found a lady to my liking, would be the woman of my heart. I have been looking for some ten years now. I am thankful I did not run you down. I think this is one of the things that I feel so enamored with of this book, and I think to some extent, Hummingbird is the same. Yes. Oh, my God. This book made me think of Hummingbird a lot. But I I think, like, I hate to be like, heteros have it hard, too. First of all, if you can get past the idea of, like, compulsive heterosexuality, and I don't know how you ever do, right? If you choose to live your life with someone of the opposite gender as someone who identifies as a woman, like, there's a lot of self-negation that goes into that. And a lot of like your relationship isn't just encumbered by the like typical like we don't understand each other because we grew up differently or whatever there's also like systemic differences Mm -hmm. and blind spots and you have this specific narrative that you're constantly being fed oftentimes you know often enough by romance novels themselves of how like they're very bad and then everything's fixed and then you get married and it's happily ever after. And there's something so satisfying about this book being like, oh no, like it's always going to be a problem. Like people are always idiots. People are always self-preserving. But there's something about someone who wants to try to make you happy. And there's something in the trying that first of all, means that sometimes they'll succeed. And other times means that even when they failed, like they get to try again. And that's up to you, right? Our heroine doesn't have a choice between two heroes, but I do feel like she has a choice to be alone. I also feel that way. And I think the thing that you just said about trying and maybe succeeding and then trying and maybe failing, but trying again, what was so refreshing and terrible and refreshing and wonderful about this book in 2021 is that in this polarized moment that we live in, I feel like when somebody fails, there's very little opportunity for a person to be like, oh, fuck, I stepped in it. I didn't know because that was a blind spot and that's my own failure for not educating myself, but I need an opportunity to fucking fix it. And this book doesn't really have characters who like have that sort of come to Jesus of like, oh fuck, I fucking stepped in it and now I feel bad. But this book does have like, even with the conversation that Damien the Duke has with Aurora, the shipping uh, magnate about the Irish, she is thinking about ways to make second and third class steerage more affordable for the Irish so that they can escape the famine. That is something that she has been thinking about since the first act. She's thinking about it both in a capitalist sense, but also in a sense that like these people need to get out because Queen Victoria isn't doing anything and the only place they can go is America. And when he says those poor brutes, he's not standing in her way and he won't stand in her way because that's not what he's going to do as a character. But within the space of his ignorance, there is a space for him to grow because of her advocacy. And there are a couple of places where the book kind of 
gestures at that. Right. Where Alex Saxton has business interests in Atlanta in 1851 in the United States, which means that he is dealing with slave owners. Well, and he shares this because his pretend wife, spoiler alert, is reading Uncle Tom's Cabin. So this book sets up places where intervention can happen and never suggests that it does or does take hold, but opens up a space where it could happen. And for me especially, like it was so weird and moving to read a book that was creating space to have hard conversations and to have differing views without villainizing either party for villainous opinions. Yeah. There isn't erasure in this novel. Right. The weight, like, there's a moment when our heroine is, they're seeking out proposals. So they, her family's company lost a ship, which is a huge loss. And they now need to sell off part of their company, right? This is how our hero gets involved. And they have an initial offer, but the family finds out that the person who originally made the offer, right, our heroine is like, yeah, let's take the offer. It's perfect. It's so low risk. And then her mother and her mother's business partner have to educate her about the fact that this person committed insurance fraud. And I felt like the implication was they committed insurance fraud on a slave ship. Yep. Also, this book 100% does the British thing where it's like, we did away with slavery in 1808 and the American colonies are going to keep their particular tipple. And we're going to keep supplying them personally and exclusively. Thank you. The royal family had the exclusive rights to making money off of African slavery for over 100 years. Prince William buys his sweaters. Yes, with that money. Also, they didn't declare slavery over in the colonies that they still owned in the Caribbean that were 100% selling to American assets and Brazil. So like, get off your high horse about 1808, bitches, because we also banned the importation of slaves in 1808. But like, yeah, I went to the the Haitian American Museum of Chicago this past weekend which is a really small museum, but it tells the story of Haiti, the history of Haiti through artworks and objects. Really good. It also provides um, gallery space for Haitian Americans. Um, If you're a Haitian American artist and you would like gallery space, then you happen to be listening to this. They do quarterly uh, exhibitions. But like that was a slave rebellion that turned into a national revolution. And it's not talked about, right? And it should be because... Or the fact that Haiti sent soldiers for the American Revolution because they believed in freedom that much. Yes. And, you know, like, but that's erasure. I appreciate the fact that this book, where we see our heroines in this particular text, like, no, we aren't going to give money to someone who um, is making money off of slavery. And we are going to build our ships for the explicit purpose of, and everyone around them is kind of saying like, oh, yes, because the capitalist imperative, like you can sell more beds, you know, like this book is honest about what it was and what motivates those changes under capital. And uh, it was just like very refreshing. (laughs) It was very refreshing because as you say, this this book doesn't lose its capitalist imperative, but it does say, like, it has that Reagan view of things. Capitalism can solve a problem. So they're going to solve the problem of the Irish famine by building better boats with more beds. But how can we do that with comfort, sanitation, and safety in mind? And so, like, this is like a compassionate capitalism that in the book is set up against a dichotomy of brutal and exploitative capitalism of slavery insurance fraud that is 100% about the slave trade in Ceylon. And it's weird to read a book that is sort of explicitly not erasure, but also is like explicitly talking about how capitalism can solve the problems that capitalism created. And it's like... Yeah. I keep coming back to this word that this book is so honest, and I don't know a better word for it. Yeah. So, 
Our hero shows up as a counter offer to the insurance fraud fuckers. Yeah, he's going to um, offer them money to like merge with his company out of Connecticut. Well, New York City. He's originally from Boston. He's originally from shipbuilders in Boston that he married into shipbuilders in New York City. He arrives and we get this like parallel of the scene where our heroine watched him have sex where he, through a stained glass window in the conference room, watches her hold court and then is like, oh, I recognize her. He becomes enraged. He gets himself back in order. Yeah. Gotta get my money's worth. He gets himself back in order. And this is where I want to push back on the idea that we don't see anyone become better because he goes into that room his internality is not dissimilar from Randall's when he meets Aurora. Like, he thinks this bitch. She thinks she's got one over on me. And so he, after their meeting in which our heroine reigns victorious, he asks to go out with her alone for dinner, takes her out for dinner, and then tells her, I don't believe you're a virgin. I think you're a sex worker. He doesn't say that. I think you're a whore. And I am going to tell everyone about it unless you give me your virginity, which I paid for already. And he means this as a way to call her bluff, right? And she'll be like, I'm not. And we'll have sex in this weekend. And like, because he still desires her. So he wants to have sex with her and get it out of his system. Right. And so he's like very insistent about this. So they come up with a scheme after they go to Kew Gardens, I think, and he asks a bunch mm-hmm. of questions about orchids because he's a gardener and she has to like hang out with him while he does that, that they're going to go to ye old Airbnb and have sex. She gets sick on the train ride and she doesn't tell him this because she's like, I'm not going to tell him this. I just want to get this over with. He's going to think I'm lying. I have a headache. I'm anxious. He's going to think I'm lying anyway. It talks about that feeling of pressure behind your eyes. Like the way this book describes the sensation of having a fever. Also the way it describes the sensation of having a headache under the circumstances of someone who already doesn't believe you. Like she's in a double bind. Yeah. She feels like shit and he won't believe her. And you feel it too. It's so evocative. It's visceral. So they go to the house and he like, she's very thirsty and he pops champagne and she drinks a lot of champagne. And then he says, you can have two glasses. You can't have any more because I don't want you drunk in bed. Yeah. But guess what? She's already got a fever. She's going to be pretty lackadaisical anyways. And she didn't have breakfast. So she's already drunk. Yeah. And he takes off his clothes and she, we're in her perspective now. She's overcome by desire. She wants it to happen. She asks it to happen. He penetrates her, classic, a me- one minute man, and then realizes that he's, she was a virgin. He says, oh shit, oh God. She's crying because it hurts way more than she expected because of course he literally did nothing to get her fire going. And then there's blood all over his penis and all over her thighs. Yeah. And he's like, Oh, God, what have I done? I called this bluff. Why did I call this bluff? Why the fuck didn't you tell me, you little liar? Oh, wait, I wouldn't have believed you anyway, and you did. Yeah. Also, like, I spent all this time, like, because we do get his internality as he's going into this first meeting where he then encounters his former nemesis. Where he's like, a lot of people would not take this person seriously because she's a woman, but I'm smart enough that I'm going to take her seriously. And she's done all of this. I should take her doubly seriously. And then he's like, I tried to have sex with you. So he has this moment after he has sex with her. He's like, oh my God, it's because I wanted to have sex with her. Who am I? And then he goes and finds a doctor and the doctor's like, you're a monster. Yeah, yeah. She has a fever of 104 and there's blood on her thighs. And he's like, we're newlyweds. And he's like, you couldn't keep it in your pants. And she has a fucking fever. Fuck you, guy. You're disgusting. I loved the doctor telling him that he sucked. Yeah, she tried to escape and she just collapsed on the beach. It was awful. It was awful. Classic romance novel, terrible first sexual experience. Absolutely a Kathleen Woodaway situation. But 
from that, we get his perspective of like, I have done something wrong. There is something inherently bad in my perspective, inherently broken. He reflects on the fact that he wanted to keep her as a mistress and like what that would even mean for somebody. That seems like the best solution in a bad situation. Like he has all of these thoughts and then he's like, I know, I'll marry her. Which is like, here's what I can do with the tools available to me in this moment. It's very much a Gaston at the end of Gigi, where she says, I would rather be miserable with you than without you. I'd rather be weeping in a Rolls Royce than giggling on a bicycle. And so he's like, this is great. Yeah. So he's like, we're going to get married. And then she fucking exits stage left chase escapes the airbnb escapes the airbnb and is like hiding for the next eight weeks which is awesome and he shows up at mom's and she's like i'm not going to tell you where she is even though i totally 100 percent know and he goes to like everyone that he can think of in england where she is and i love that he does this because like that functions not as a mea culpa but as proof of work like show your work Exactly. Much more for me, for Morgan, for Morgan, better than a Mia Culpa. Eight weeks in London. It's not better for a Mia Culpa for me. I know. You love a Mia Culpa. You're going to get it. You're going to get it. So then they show up because her mother is marrying the Duke that we have already discussed yeah. as a perfect, imperfect person in this text. And she, Gianna, is there and she doesn't feel well of course because it's eight weeks after her first sexual experience and my girl is pregnant Prego! vomits into a bush and he says let's get fake married and it's like how the fuck does this book still have space for a trope and it does <laughs> it's like fake married that's exactly right that's I was exactly like, excuse right. me? After, After all, all of this, a whole fucking new book starts. And it's fake marriage. Which, by the way, felt like five minutes. It felt like I read it all in five minutes. So he's like, we'll get fake married. We'll go to New York. Nobody has to know you. You can be pregnant and you can be a pregnant wife and you'll live comfortably. And then once you have the baby, you can pop back over to London and just like have a baby, I guess. But you'll have the American divorce, so it won't matter. So the baby will have legitimacy. You'll have your freedom. You'll never be legally dead. You're safe. I'm safe. The baby is safe from being a bastard. Now, he has been previously married, and his wife died under mysterious circumstances, and he has a six-year-old daughter. He does. Jane. But our heroine says, cool sounds good. Cool sounds good. Let's do fake married in uh, New York because my friend Derry from my Swiss boarding school is there with her shitty husband. Her significantly older husband and her shitty stepdaughter. Who's my age. Yeah. So they pop over to New York City. Ye old New York. And once again, this book proves it's kinkier than anything else we've read. read. Lots of pregnancy sex. Oh, we've got first trimester weird sex. We've got second trimester weird sex. We've got third trimester weird sex. And also just like, not weird. Come on. Normalized pregnancy sex. One time I was listening to Man Cow. I don't want to talk about it. I don't want to hear it. What? Why were you listening to Man Cow in the morning? The fuck? I was cruising the stations. There was a song okay. I liked. Okay. Okay. I'm in the okay. car. Listen. God damn it. Jesse's girl. Probably. More than likely. Obviously. For those of you who don't know, Man Cow is the guy who started before Howard Stern perfected. So he's awful. Anyways, he's a morning drive time radio DJ. And he's like, I can't remember what the call-in was. But one caller called in and was like, my wife's three months pregnant. Blah, 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 whatever other thing. Second caller comes in and is like, hey, I just wanted to respond to the caller who called in and said his wife was three months pregnant. Man Cow's like, what you got to say, guy? And he was like... You're about to have the best sex of your life for the next six months. He's like, if I could get my wife pregnant again, I'd do it every time. And I was like, it's 7 a.m. <laughs> it's 7 a.m., man cow. <laughs> Anyways, and like also like all the way Chicago accent. If I could get my wife pregnant every time, I'd do it. Anyways. Sausage. 
Ditka. <laughs> All I'm saying is this book both made me want to be pregnant and also want to have sex pregnant. And I have not read a romance with pregnancy kink since Johanna Lindsay. I haven't read a romance where the hero I haven't read a romance where the hero was specifically like, I love your big belly. And then rubbed her big belly and kissed her. And it's not even like, this is first trimester. First trimester, second trimester. He loves all her bellies. He loves her changing belly. There's like a possession aspect to it. But there's also just like a respect. Like, oh my God, goddess femininity aspect to it. And like yeah, her yeah, like yeah. boobs. It's so worshipful. Yes, worshipful is the right word. Absolutely. There's this aspect to this novel where like they're only really honest about their feelings for each other when they are physically expressing them and so it is it's like worshipful femininity it's like i love every part of you you know i've never been pregnant but i have been a person in a relationship and my body has changed and it means so much because there is so little in media and culture that tells you like once you're an adult woman you become this new kind of like Susan Sontag wrote about the fact that men have two versions of attractiveness and women only have one and ours is like the nubile childlike version. And oftentimes in romance novels, especially from this era, but romance novels from this era as well, mm-hmm. I mean like our current moment, <laughs> tend to ide- idolize the same kind of body that the culture does, right? Which is this essentially childlike body so reading something from this era that has all of the fucking ape shit trappings that i love from romances of this era but also like i love your belly like i love that your hips are getting wider i love your big sloppy tits like shit that's amazing to read Like someone being like, I love this version of you. Because he's someone who's been married and had a child before, he also tells her like, I'm going to love your body after this. That's incredible. Like you never read something like that. And it's so sad because romance really touts itself as a feminist genre. Yeah. But if you can't love a a pregnant body and then a post-pregnancy body, like how feminist are you? And we've never read that. Like we've read plenty of post-pregnancy bodies, but they're like, miraculously, she was once again 12. The same. This book did so much work. And like that she's sick, so she doesn't, she's not interested in as much of a sexual relationship, but she still wants to be cuddled and held. And so this book goes through the entire spectrum of intimacy for a body as it changes and like where he also has to like massage her feet and help her get out of her clothes. It's still like, no, you're super fucking hot. I super fucking want you. And there's even a moment when she's like, we haven't had sex in four days. You're, you have a mistress. And he's like, bitch, please. We've been working. You're tired you've been throwing up I've been throwing up we just like had this whole move from England to New York we gotta take it easy I don't feel good I want you but my bot like the the spirit is willing but the flesh isn't like but also soft and spongy I think like also the didn't the doctor tell him like she's exhausted physically exhausted so what do they do gentle spoon lovemaking yeah gentle spoon lovemaking when's the last time that we read sex where like everyone was on their side and it was like morning but soft listener (laughs) listener it's not even the first time they have spoon sex the first time they have spoon sex post thanksgiving (laughs) spoon sex is national holiday it's true story true story even though thanksgiving was not a national holiday in 1851 yeah historically inaccurate fuck off fuck you this book for having these fucking inaccuracies in your otherwise really good text and it's distract it made me so mad for some reason it was very distracting for like such a well-crafted text i'm like you didn't have to get this wrong why did you choose to do this wrong in film studies there's this really big deal article that ran in cinema cahier du cinema cinema about birds the birds by alfred hitchcock and it matters a lot however you realize now in our day and age that the person who wrote it 
got it wrong. Andre Bazan got it wrong because the only time he could see the movie was when he went to the theater. And he saw it a lot in the theater. Nowadays, if you're a film student, you like can watch a movie and pause it and pause it and pause it and you can get the scenes exactly right. And there's this slippage in this article where it's clear that he's projecting what he wants the movie to do onto what the movie actually does and now that we have our blu-ray players we're all like this is incorrect but it's still right (laughs) the feeling that it evoked is correct but yeah is correct i have a hard time with that i'm always like oh like first of all how can you think to google every single like you know i had this problem with ties that bind where i was like rainbow coalition was founded in chicago right sure was that's a that's a historical fact that has stood out to me it's not like I googled every fact in the book to fact check it right it's just the ones that you know that ping you yeah exactly and so when you're writing a book in an era when you don't have google and you don't want to go to the library to find out when thanksgiving was founded although one last stop got the history of craigslist wrong like it's impossible to be perfect and and like I was thinking about our conversation around neon gods where it was like can we hold this book to the same standards as like a fantasy novel as far as world building goes. Can we hold historical romance to the same standards as far as historical fiction goes, knowing (laughs) that you have to focus on like way more on like character development and this central love story? Sure. Listen, I'm not going to hold romance to the same historical accuracy that I might hold a Philippa Gregory or, you know. (laughs) I can just hear someone now like at Mance underscore whoa, what have the last three years been? (laughs) Sure. (laughs) I accept that. I accept that. And like one of the things that I would like the grace to grow in, one of the things that this book really revealed to me is the thing that we have been talking about for at least the last 18 months, if not longer, where it's like a historical novel is only ever speaking to its current moment and that the historicism is truly just window dressing. Like this is not a book about 1847 and 1851 in London, Rome, and New York. This is a book about the United States in 1985. I'm annoyed that it got a big historical detail like the founding of Thanksgiving, Wrong because it has a lot of other things that go into it that this novel actually talked about and it feels like an, an unforced error. I feel the same way when like Aaron Rodgers doesn't convert a third down. You know what I mean? Where I'm like, you fucking could have done that, but you chose not to like an idiot. You just <laughs> run it in for two yards and you chose not to. Totally. I uh, completely relate. I understood everything in that metaphor. I've come to this space where like I understand that the the historicity of a romance novel has to be secondary, but that window dressing doesn't have to be sloppy. And like I've read really good historicals and I've read really sloppy ones. And like this is both of those things which makes it delighting and frustrating. I think so this thing about historicals and this thing about like this actually being like a kinky book or at least like and that's the thing like is it a kinky book or is it just like depicting the full spectrum of sexuality that we all experience every day and it feels kinky because oftentimes when people are like it's kinky I put a bow on my neck you know a pussy bow yeah exactly But I like think a pussy bow, a placebo, think about it. I think part of the function of historical romances and like bodice ripper, right, that it gave us a space to be honest sexually and to think like weird, you know, weird, if you felt weird about it, you could put it in a historical because that gives you just enough buffer because you don't see sex like this in contemporary romances. And I think if Fifty Shades of Grey is a fulcrum for anything, it's taking that time your boyfriend pulled your tampon out, a place in in the 20 in your current moment. <laughs> like it's a little bit more honest and bared and direct in the fact that it's contemporaneous. Right, cuz when we think about contemporaneous 1980s books, they feel much more dated than this book. And when we think about, you know, um 
Susan Elizabeth Phillips and like No Baby But Mine, a non-con consenting version of that fantasy still feels retro and gross, but in Catherine Coulter's historical, it feels subversive because she can literally be more honest. Yeah. And there's something about that structure that really lays bare the problem of agency, the problem of choice, and the problem that we talked about in Neon Gods, which is like you're always resisting and failing to resist ideology. And like that you can't be politically correct in your sex life. Yeah. And you don't have to fail in a historical. Like it's not a failure because it's just a product of the time. Right. That the book is set in. And I think that's why... I personally gravitate towards historical romances because I feel like I can have this like honest conversation like it's the kind of sex I want to read about that I'm interested in and I get frustrated with historicals that get bogged down and like now we're going to talk about consent you know (laughs) and like or I think that's why I like these old ones specifically. Like not just as, like I'll always have a historical preference I think because of what we discussed. But I think also like these older ones where it's clear that people are much more comfortable allowing their id to run wild. And there's something about someone being unselfconscious putting sex on the page that is way more interesting. And not just sex but like love and relationships in this way less And humanity. Yes, in this way less self-conscious way, like this way of being like everything you can like, you know, you can give it up to God. You can give it up to the Victorian era. You can give it up to the Regency, right? You can give it up to Jane Austen and that allows you this freedom. Authentic. And I think... I think that's the thing where it's like, I, I don't think that people disagree with political correctness because it's like pandering. I don't think that's the thing. I think that people get really offended about like, oh, why are you doing this? I think people have that reaction to political correctness or like the quote unquote po- political correctness police because it, it feels inauthentic. And the thing that is so strange about reading a book from 1985 that went through two titles, <laughs> Sweet Surrender to fucking Evening Star. Neither makes sense. <laughs> Neither makes sense. It is authentically itself. There are no good choices under patriarchy. There are, People are going to defend their shitty choices to themselves because they have to go to bed thinking that they're okay people. Yeah, exactly. That is so heartbreaking and so heart uplifting and I think that in this moment of polarization it's like really easy to paint people in a particular kind of corner and like only you know use a really broad brush and what this book is forcing you to do is like people make bad choices for lots of different reasons and they make good choices for lots of different reasons you gotta fucking find a way to rationalize I think people have positive impacts on the world for lots of different reasons and people have negative impacts on the world for lots of different reasons. And you have to always rationalize to yourself. But there are like people who everyone thinks that everything's a matter of survival and some people are right and some people are wrong and their threshold for survival is totally misconstrued, out of whack. Um, as is the case with our our characters here. So, Isabeau, what is your sexiest part? Just to, like, flip the ship around. Because I've already talked about my sexiest part. Listen, that scene where Alex Saxon throws that sex worker's <laughs> legs over his shoulders is undeniably the sexiest part of this book. But for me, if I can't choose that, which is 100% my first sexiest part, my sex, <laughs> my second sexiest part, the scene where she's in her second trimester and she's like super horny and she's like, we need to have sex. And he undoes her dressing gown and does the worshipful thing at her collarbones, at her breasts, at her belly, and then like does the whole thing. And it talks about her pubic hair and her knees and the back of her legs and like the way that he interacts with her body. And she's like, I'm too heavy. And he's like, yeah, shut the fuck up. I'm going to carry you until I can't. And like, it's not going to be this baby that does that. What is your 
weirdest part? My weirdest part is when Randall, the fortune seeker husband potentiality of the first act, shows up in the third act at a strike. And like this book had been doing really well in terms of workers' rights, in terms of the Irish, in terms of like slavery is bad. And then all of a sudden it's like, wait, strikers are violent and like hide super malevolent forces like Randall who then tries to blackmail her. Yeah, yeah. That was my weirdest part where I was like, we did so much good work. Why are we backtracking in this way? As soon as like someone has a disruption, a strike, they're evil. That's bad. Yeah. That like also feels really inconsistent. Well, I'm glad you brought that up because I think it's important to note like these characters don't do a lot of like political thinking. It's not like, and then he fought slavery, right? But he feels a little, he's made to feel a little bit self-conscious about his business <laughs> businesses by his wife and that's acknowledged, right? Mm-hmm. So it's not perfect. It feels, like you said, authentic. It doesn't feel like providing lip service or like some kind of fantasy, right, about a historical. But the worker shit is where the Reaganism really comes out. So our heroine finds McCormick's Wheat Thresher at the London World's Fair. And she becomes obsessed with it. And she's like, we've got to give him money. We've got to build these wheat threshers and we'll make back our investment. And nobody wants to give her money because McCormick has like burned so many bridges. McCormick was a Chicagoan. And she is like, no, I'm going to like give him money. And she finds out that the workers in Chicago are on strike 1851 is a big year for the mayday strikes here in chicago hell yes classic us and so everyone's like we're not going to give you any money well guess what she gives him money um that's loaned to her by Derry's husband who is her husband her pretend husband's alex's like rival because he wanted to marry alex's first wife whatever so he gives her money to spite Alex and it looks like he's about to gain 25% equity in her mother's shipyard because of this. And then, glory be, McCormick is able to move his manufacturing to New York City where there aren't workers strike. But we are pre-Triangle Shirtwaist Factory disaster. And she's she runs to the shipyard. <laughs> yeah. And she runs to the shipyard to tell her pretend husband the great news because she's so proud of the fact that this developed. And like, just like you pointed out, there's this idea of like striking workers, shady business. It has absolutely no worker solidarity. Like it's going to talk about like the Irish famine, which was actually a construct because the English wouldn't like the only crop that was affected were potatoes. The English landowners could have saved lives a quarter of the population of ireland's lives by allowing them to consume crops other than potatoes that they were able to grow themselves right so that's a constructed famine that is a a genocide then we have a genocide happening of slavery because human life is turned into chattel that is undermined in the text and then we get workers right which is like the right to not be killed for your labor by your labor and then it's like hurrah we've overcome this and it undermines everything else that's happened in the book and it happens in the last fucking act so she like runs to the shipyard because she's so excited and she's third trimester and then a ship mast breaks and barely avoids it and Alex becomes enraged that she came to the shipyard in her delicate condition and he screams at her and he's always like jokingly threatened to beat her and now he's like which isn't very funny but now he's like I'm really gonna do it And she's like, all right, I'm going to leave you. And then he shows up and she goes to a hotel in order to board a ship to England before her baby is born. And then he turns on the gas lamp and is like, I'm here. I bribed the hotel manager. Guess what? Secret is I love you. That's the ending. (laughs) That's the end. She delivers that baby safely. They get married for realsies. Maybe, maybe if the labor strikes hadn't been the complete hinge on which the happily ever after turns, yes, I would be like, so it was just a weird part. But now I'm like, ah, it's a weird. Now the whole book 
is a weird fucking book because like if you can consistently be realistic about like these are good people in bad times right and be like oh he has to justify himself to himself about working with slavery but his wife is confronting that and so we see the potentiality for him to change right even if it doesn't happen on the page nope they're both just fucking psyched that they hired a bunch of scabs to build wheat threshers they sure would also the mccormicks would go on to find found the university that you and i met at yeah that was my weirdest part because i also think that it really undid the excellent work that kathleen coulter did about sex work in rome because you know worker solidarity is seen as dirty dangerous and potentially violent and it's like mm, yeah workers are just really trying to organize against their own exploitation and death so yeah let's talk about that fucking cognitive dissonance where it's like here these women are trying to do the best for themselves and sometimes they make it work and sometimes they only make it work long enough to get out they're all coming from bad situations and trying to improve their lives and trying to survive uh, but fuck all these people who work in the iron factories in Chicago. Yeah, fuck those people because they're just interfering with business and like yeah. resiliency and ideas. Yeah, no, I, and especially with the the conversation around Aurora Van Cleve and like her building of the shipping business, it was such a wrong note in the third act. Yeah, that was my weirdest part. Well, what can what else can we say about Evening Star? Here's the thing about Evening Star. This is a book I will think about for a really long time. This book operated for me in a space where like I wanted to talk to everyone about it. Like I wanted to <laughs> yes, talk to my same. mom. I want to talk to my sister. I want to talk to my brother-in-law. I want to talk to my hubs. I was like, I have so many thoughts like this is such a com it's so meaty we haven't even talked about the fact that everyone referred to vulva as a belly yeah oh my god i want to talk i read this book because i want to talk to you about it read this book because i want to talk to your mom about it read this book because i want to talk to your dog about it like anybody and everybody please read this book so that i can talk to you about it it's just There are times when genre fiction punches through the membrane and is just like literature. And I think Evening Star, the little onion that could. It is such an onion. I mean, we have, we've been talking for two hours. It's been a long time since you and I have talked about a book for two hours. I read a tweet today that said, fiction that provides simple answers isn't worth reading. And my first reaction was like, (gasps) fuck you. But then I thought about it in terms (laughs) of Evening Star by Catherine Coulter. And I was like, oh, maybe that's right. Because there are no easy answers. There are no absolutions. There are no absolute forgivenesses. There is an absolute spectrum of terrible. Yeah. But everybody fits on it. And you've got to carve your own happiness out of it. But guess what? This book is imperfect in that message. Nope. It's a womance. I mean, it's a womance. Come on. I can't believe the entire Chicago Public Library system has one copy of this book. Last question for you, Morgan. Would you agree to be part of this? Let me know. Would you let Catherine Coulter know that you're a part of this? If you're alive, Catherine Coulter, womance. (laughs) is a part of this we say yes we're we're a part of this i say yes i am fearful of reading more in the series in the same way that i'm fearful of ending this recording because i have to watch the last episode of the white lotus like i'm not ready for it to be over i'm not ready for it to change (laughs) i like need to sit with it i need to get in the hot tub and here's the thing it is like a hot tub because it's hot and it's sexy, and it's bubbly, and it's got jets, but it's also full of bacteria. <laughs> and you- it's so gross. Don't think about it. And then you think about it. But you kind of have to think about think it. About you kind of got to put the chlorine tab in it. We're all in that stew together. And this book is like, it's fun, but it's gross. Who's this guy coming into your hot tub? He's tall. He's busting the union. And he's going to sit next to you in the hot tub. And now you're sharing a hot tub with this guy. And it makes it a little bit harder to share the, enjoy the hot tub. 
but here you are. It's a romance because it's messy. <laughs> and at the end of all of this, when we say loosen your stays, we mean don't take yourselves too seriously. We mean don't hold yourselves to standards that you can't maintain that others can't maintain when we say loosen your stays it's not a fun pun on a historical novel we're actually talking about the ways in which you need to expand your chest so that you can get a full breath and look at yourself critically and full of both abnegation and gentleness and in that way we also say loosen your stays but never your principles Mwah! Oh my god, that was beautiful. Woli guacamole, everyone! Thanks for listening to another episode of Womance. Womance is hosted, produced, and edited by my friend Morgan. And by my friend Isabel. Our logo artwork is by another friend, Mary Reichman. You can find her on Instagram at m.reichman, spelled R-E-I-S-C-H-M-A-N-N. Original music by Nick Gravelin. And our webmistress is Jane Bonzac. They're the best. You're also the best. We so appreciate your support by listening. Please consider taking this to the next level by following, rating, and reviewing. We read every single review. Or even check us out on Patreon. If you'd like more woe in your life, you can connect with us on Instagram at womans and on Twitter where we are at mans underscore woe. Or you can find more episodes and content at womanspodcast.com. If you have an idea or just want to reach out, please email womancemail at gmail.com. We'd love to hear from you. Womance is a part of the Frolic Podcast Network. Find more podcasts to add to your romance collection at frolic.media backslash podcasts. Until next time. Hi, gang. Morgan and Isabel here to share. We are looking for a new member for the Woe team to help us edit and cut episodes. If somebody you know or you yourself has experience with editing podcasts or even music and is interested in adding us to your portfolio, please reach out. Email womansmail at gmail.com with the subject line editor. Pretty basic understanding of sound editing software is a good starting point. Yeah, we want this to be mutually beneficial, meaning we'll be able to offer some compensation for your time and are open to supporting any creative goals you have and see how we can work together. Again, email womance, that's W-H-O-A-M-A-N-C-E, mail at gmail.com with the subject line editor. Mail as in mail a letter, not mail as in mister. (laughs) (laughs) Looking forward to hearing from you.